So Genesis 41, starting at verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years, I'm sorry, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man of discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Jump to verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is divine spirit? So so Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. 53. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So when the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. So as we're continuing our story in the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph, we've moved into chapter 41. And just as a little bit of review to kind of bring us back, if you remember, Joseph started out as a young 17-year-old wearing a fancy coat, had a bright future ahead of him, but he had brothers that absolutely hated him. And they basically threw him in a pit, stripped him of his coat, some slave traders came by, they sold him to the slave traders and he found himself in Egypt as a house slave to a man by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar was over the, the Pharaoh's guard, a very wealthy man, a very well-to-do man, but also Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. And we know the story, Joseph resisted her. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 39 verse nine, it says, there is no one greater in this house than I and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? At a young age, Joseph already knew who his God was. He already was a young man of integrity. We don't know exactly how old he was at this point. My guess is he was probably somewhere around 27, 28 years old. And so what happened though is Potiphar's wife wouldn't let go. She kept pressing him, pressing him, wanting him to be with her. And one day she traps him, grabs him by his robe. He flees, but she has the robe and she uses that as evidence saying that he tried to rape me. And she says that to her husband. Well, the husband gets upset and throws him into the king's prison. It is in the king's prison where we realize that God was still with Joseph. As a matter of fact, Brian taught on that last week. And Pharaoh had been angry with the chief cupbearer and with the chief baker. And in prison, the chief jailer took a liking to Joseph and put him in charge of all the prisoners. And Joseph noticed one day that the chief cupbearer and the chief baker that there was something wrong and he asked them and they shared with him these dreams that they had. 
And then Joseph gave the interpretation to the dreams because God gave him the interpretation. And to the chief baker, he told him that in three days he would be released from prison and he would be back as the chief cupbearer to the Pharaoh. Great news, that's really what happened. Not so good news to the chief baker. He said, in three days, you're gonna be hanged by the neck and the birds are gonna eat your flesh. And that's exactly what happened. But Joseph pleaded with the chief baker, remember me, I'm falsely accused. He said, get me out of this prison. Well, the chief baker forgot. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, it says, yet the chief cupbearer, sorry, I said baker, should be cupbearer, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then now we move into chapter 41, verse 1, and it's going to say, now it happened after two full years. So Joseph pleads with the chief cupbearer, remember me. And now he's waiting, waiting another two years. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out he's actually been in Egypt for 13 years at this point. 13 years of waiting on God, two years in this prison waiting on God. And I'm hoping that through this message today, because I know that there are many of us here today that we're waiting. We're waiting on God to move. It could be any number of reasons. And sometimes it's to the point we think, has God forgotten me? And I wonder how Joseph felt. And today, through Joseph's example, we'll learn some valuable lessons on what it means to wait on God. And God allows for seasons of waiting for his people. And it's for our good. And it's for his glory. And we're gonna look at Joseph's life and there are lessons that we can learn on how to wait for God. So what lessons are, are we gonna learn right here on waiting on God? The first lesson is God is at work in the waiting even when we cannot see it. God is at work in the waiting even when we cannot see it. Now, just because we can't see what God is doing, it doesn't mean that God isn't working. Look at verse one. It says, now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the, by the Nile. Now, it says here that Pharaoh had a dream. That's one dream. But we also know in verse five that he also has a second dream. Now, what's interesting to me is Jero, uh, uh, Joseph, when he was 17, he had two dreams. A little later, when you see the, the cupbearer and the chief baker, they each had a dream. That was two dreams. And then again, you see God moving here in two dreams. And I think Joseph at this point, knowing that the cupbearer, that he had helped him, and now it's two years later, I think he feels, I've been forgotten by God, but God hadn't forgotten him. And Joseph had no idea that at this time that God was actually moving that God was orchestrating events. But what I want you to see is a, is a couple principles right up front that are very important when we wait on God. The first thing is this. Joseph actively waited. He actively waited. He wasn't passive. Joseph did his job. Joseph was in the prison. He had found favor with the chief jailer. He was overseeing the prisoners. He wasn't just sitting down in his prison cell saying, gee whiz, twiddle my thumbs, I wonder what God is going to do. No, he actively waited, actively did what he could do. 
And so often I think that we as brothers and sisters in the Lord, when we're waiting on God, we kind of forget, guys, do what he's called you to do. Whatever that is, wherever you are. Because Joseph knew that God had given him his own dreams. And that one day, God would bring those dreams to fulfillment. He was waiting on God, but while he waited, it was active, not passive. He did what he could do in the area that God had placed him. Not only that, there's a second principle. In fact, I like this principle. God sees our faithfulness and obscurity as preparation for increasing responsibility and influence later. God sees our faithfulness and obscurity as a preparation for increasing responsibility and influence later. In other words, God is preparing me now for the way that he will use me later. Have you guys ever seen that in your life? That the things you learned years ago, now God is using those lessons, and that's often how God works. And Joseph's life, it teaches us this wonderful principle that it is in the little things that we learn and then God prepares us for biggest th bigger things later. I, you see this in our own Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, but in his humanness, God called him to obedience even in the little things. I mean, from the moment he could hold a, a hammer from the moment he could hold a mallet, he was working in his father's shop as a carpenter. And for 30 years in simple obedience, God then later used that obedience to the point where he is obedient, even to the point of being put on a cross for our sakes, for the sin of the world. And that's often the way that the Lord works in us. He is training us preparing us now, calling us to obedience, sometimes in the little things. And, and maybe we've seen this in our own life. We see it in kind of the sowing and reaping. I mean, how many times have you been on your knees praying for people and, and nobody's seen that but the Lord? How many times have you served behind the scenes? You never got thanks for that, but God sees that. I mean, how many times have you planted seeds of the gospel in people's lives? You've shared Christ, but you haven't seen any fruit. But God knows that obedience and all that is preparation that God is using, that he can call you to more things. Author Wayne Still says this. He said, little things make up big things. Pennies make dollars. Brick make walls. Days make years. Verses make Bibles. Little things matter, and when little things represent faithfulness to God, they remain crucial to our preparation for an expansion of our influence. Joseph's obedience in the obscure moments when nobody really saw, God was preparing him. God saw it. God was training him and, and molding him. And guys, Pharaoh had two dreams. Joseph didn't know that. And these two dreams, one was on cows and the other one was with grain. I think it was corn. And he dreamed of these cows. And in this dream, there are these fat, sleek cows that are feeding on the marshy grass by the Nile River. And then he sees these ugly, gaunt, thin cows. And the ugly, thin cows, they actually eat the healthy cows. He wakes up, goes back to sleep, and he has the second dream 
And he sees these healthy, I think they're stalks of corn, full of corn. But there's also these thin, wind-torn corn. And the thin corn eats the healthy corn. And then he wakes up. And verse 41, verse 8 says, Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and he called all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. The Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one to interpret the dreams. Well, guys, these were God dreams. God was moving. Joseph didn't know that, but in God's timing, he was moving, and he had imparted these dreams to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh can't rest. He needs an answer. He, he asks his magicians, his soothslayers, that they don't know what to tell him. And in verse 9, it says, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Suddenly the cupbearer remembers. Guys, that's God moving in the mind and the heart of the cupbearer as well. Sometimes we think God's doing nothing. From our perspective, we can't see it, but do you know that he is always active? God is always moving. We don't always know what he's doing. Here, he moves on Pharaoh. He moves on the cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph. He says, I remember when, when I was in prison, me and the chief baker, and we told this young Hebrew man our dreams. And verse 13 says, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened, and he restored me to my office, but he hanged him. And God was moving in a way that Joseph didn't know. Now, could you imagine if Joseph had, 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 had wanted that cupbearer to tell him right away when, when the cupbearer had left, and if the cupbearer had actually told that to the Pharaoh? I mean, the Pharaoh didn't have a need in the beginning. And if he would have shared that story, that cupbearer to him, he probably would have said, yeah, that's interesting. Whoosh, out of sight, out of mind. But this was the perfect moment. This is what God was doing. This was the time that God was moving. Now, I think from Joseph's perspective, he's thinking, man, this has taken way too long. At this point, about 13 years now, he's been in Egypt, two years in a prison. But God does not so much care about our happiness. What he cares is about godliness. He cares about character. And God is using this time in Joseph's life to change him and to mold him and to do heart work. There is a testing in this time of waiting. And that's often what God does with us. He's, he's testing us. He's molding us. He's changing us. And the tests for us come in various ways and various sizes. But the Lord was with Joseph that whole time even though Joseph didn't know it. And understand that godly character is linked directly to our relationship with God. And how do you deepen a relationship with God? Well, it's through the testing and the trials of life and our obedience to him and our drawing close to him that he molds us and he shapes us. And even though Joseph could not see it, God was working on the Pharaoh and the cupbearer and God was working on him. Now, guys, I, I was the first Christian in my family. I came to know Jesus Christ in 1991. And right away, I wanted everyone in my family to know Jesus. And the term Bible thumper was a good term for me. 
I was a good Bible thumper, but not a very good Bible lover. And so I hammered my mother, my brother Stu, my brother Gordon, my brother Rick, my sister Barbara, my sister Libby. Man, they got more tapes, more Bibles, more books. In the first two years of my conversion, they absolutely didn't want me coming around. Well, I suddenly realized, wow, that's not working. As a matter of fact, there was like a, a coldness and a hardness, and it was getting worse as I was pressing. And so God, one night, kind of told me, back off and pray. And so I backed off, and I started to wait. That was really hard for me. And it was a, a testing time for me, uh, having to trust that God would do something, that it wasn't me who saves, he saves. And the first one in my family that started to show an interest in Christ was my brother Stu. It was about four years in my walk with Jesus and Stu started to ask me questions about the Bible. And I remember I was kind of studying end times, end times theology, the return of Jesus Christ. And I had read a book by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody read that one? And I remember I said, hey, Stu, read this. And my brother Stu read it and two weeks later called me and said, hey, I received Jesus Christ. I was like, man, yes, Lord. One down. And I kept praying. A whole decade goes by. No movement, none. My family's not interested in Jesus Christ. And I'm waiting and I'm praying. And then my brother Gordon in 2006 got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Now that was a dramatic thing to my family. Early onset Alzheimer's, when you're young, it means you're going to die. And so I remember as a family, we just kind of gathered around Gordy and we kind of took different responsibilities. But what I noticed at that time was there was a change in the heart of my family. Guys, it wasn't the way I wanted the change. I had my ideas the way God would reach my family. But God began to move. He began to move on my heart and he began to move on my family's heart. First lesson. God is at work in the waiting, even when we can't see it. Second lesson, God reveals things in his timing and in his way. God reveals things in his timing and his way. Guys, it's hard for us to wait on God's timing. We have in our mind what God should be doing. Look at verse 14, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now, can you imagine? It's just another day in prison, right? He's making his rounds. Everything's the same. Nothing has changed day after day. Same routine. And remember, God is not as concerned with our happiness as ultimately his own glory. And suddenly, Joseph gets this message that the Pharaoh, the leader of the nation, is calling him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but have you noticed that sometimes insignificant relationships, somebody who maybe you just met, some maybe brief meeting, that sometimes God will use that meeting, that person, in a significant way? That's often the way God works. God is always at work. There is no chance meetings in God's economy and God's kingdom. And that brief stay of the cupbearer was that meaning that God used. And suddenly, him communicating to Pharaoh, suddenly Pharaoh says, 
I need to meet this man. And that day in prison seemed like any other day. But it wasn't. This was the turn, if you will, that God was going to use. And understand, prisons are not the cleanest places, so Joseph has to clean up. And so the Egyptian men in that day, they, they would shave, be clean shaven. And so he shaves and, and he puts on new clothes. And the next thing he knows, he is standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. Verse 15 says, Pharaoh said to Jesus, Joseph, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream that you can interpret it. Now, I think most people would respond to Pharaoh, yep, I'm your man. Yeah, I can interpret dreams. I've done many of them before. And man, I've got your back, Pharaoh. You just tell me, I'm it. Self-promote, right? But you don't see that with Joseph. He doesn't self-promote. He points. He points to the true and living God. There's a heart change in him. He knows where his help comes from. God had chosen Joseph for just this moment. God had used that time of testing. He no longer was that 17-year-old wearing that coat who was full of pride. He was a humble man of God who had been prepared for this moment because God was going to use him mightily. And for Joseph, it was God's kingdom first. And then God would give the increase. Isn't that what Jesus told us in Matthew 6, verse 33? He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We need to understand something here, guys, as God's people. Timing is his business. Obedience is our business. God works it out in his timing and in his way, but he calls us to be faithful and obey. It rhymed. That's pretty good. He calls us to be faithful. He calls us to obey, and that's what we see in Joseph. He knew that it was God who opened this door with Pharaoh. Look at verse 16. It says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That is a wonderful verse to remember. It is not in me but it is God working through me. And that's true for me, that's true for you. He's no longer that 17-year-old. As a matter of fact, he's exactly doing what Zechariah said in Zechariah 4, 6. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Pharaoh, he tells Joseph these two dreams. You have these seven fat cows eaten by starving cows. You have seven healthy ears of corn eaten by withered corn. And then Joseph, three different times, gives God the credit. In verse 25, he says, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. And then Joseph begins to explain to him that the seven years, that there will be seven years of abundance that will come upon the land of Egypt. And after those seven years of abundance, there will be seven years of famine. And then he makes a bold suggestion, which I think is led by the Spirit of God. And in verse 33, he says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise to set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph is displaying godly wisdom. 
godly discernment. Well, how did he get that? He got it in prison. He got it in this time of waiting, this molding and breaking and shaking that God does in our lives when we have to wait. And he tells Pharaoh that, that he should appoint people over the land and they should gather the excess food and then store it and then also guard it. Because when that time of famine comes, they're going to need that food. And it says in verse 37 that the Pharaoh, that it seemed good to him and to all his servants. And you see that the hand of God was on Joseph's life and that he had prepared him. But understand, sometimes when the presence of God is on your life, you can still go through suffering. And that's exactly what had happened in Joseph's life. And God reveals his plan to him in his way and in his timing. And God revealed these dreams to Joseph and he was helping him to see the solution to the crisis. But it was in the most difficult years that were actually the most formative years for Joseph's life. This is where God developed in him godly character. He developed in him faith and trust and wisdom. And this is often how God works in our life as well. What is God doing in your life right now by waiting? How is he working in your life right now? What are you waiting on before the Lord? What have you been pleading with him in that, that quiet hour of prayer? Listen, this is the time that God is calling you. He's molding you. He's working in your life. And when he moves, it's in his timing and his way. But he's active, even right now, even though you don't see it. You know, when my brother was diagnosed with the Alzheimer's, there was a shift in my family, and, and spiritual conversations began to happen. Now, in that time of, of my brother beginning to, if you want to call it, slide, there was still a lot of God's grace. In 2010, my brother still had the ability to reason, to communicate, and I took him to lunch. My brother received Jesus Christ, my brother Gordon. And by far, I considered him the hardest of the bunch in my family. But God used this terrible disease to actually make him kind of like a child, kind of simple. And the gospel is simple. And when Gordy and I talked, I explained to him that, that you know, he was a sinner and, and he needed God's love and God's grace and he needed to repent and, and he understood all that and in, in my car, he prayed to receive Christ. Well, 2011, my brother began to lose the ability to walk. A little later that year, he lost the ability to talk and to reason. And in 2013, my brother died. Now, it's a sad story, but, you know, I, I truly believe absent from the body, present with the Lord, so I'm celebrating that. But what I saw, saw God do in that difficult time as my family was waiting and watching in this difficulty, it was after my brother's death that suddenly my siblings, their heart began to be open to the gospel message. And God started to create opportunities for, for us to have conversations about Jesus Christ for real, it wasn't just this. There was kind of an openness there. And in 2014, 
my daughter graduated from college and, and my mother came to the graduation. And in the, on the Saturday morning after the graduation, I'm getting ready to come here for a board meeting. It's six in the morning, I'm making coffee and my mother's sitting on my couch and she's crying. And, and I'm like, what? And, and I thought she was hurt. And I, and I sat down next to her and I said, mom, what's going on? And she said, I, I had a dream. She sleeps on our couch, by the way, she likes our couch. And she said, I had a dream of my grandmother singing me a hymn when I was five years old. So that's, my mother was 90 years old at that time. So that's an 85 years ago, suddenly she has this dream and, and the hymn was Sweet Hour of Prayer and she was crying. And I'm thinking, this is a God deal. And I said, Mom, I gotta go to a board meeting, but don't leave. When I come back, we're gonna talk. And when I came back, my mother was so open. There was a, something that had happened to her heart. She suddenly was open and she wanted Jesus Christ. And, and I was able to explain the gospel to her. And I had the privilege to lead her to Christ. I mean, praise God. Three months later, same thing with my brother Rick. Guys, I had hammered them for years. But in God's timing... In his way, suddenly my brother Rick was kept asking me questions about Jesus. And finally I said, Rick, what is holding you back? And he says, I don't think I can live it. I says, you're right, you can't. Do you want to know what that means? He said, yes. And I got, again, I got to share with him that you're a sinner. You need God's grace. Jesus died on the cross for you. You must receive and then repent. And he repented and received Christ. 2015, I invite them to church. They show up with my sister Barbara. That was shocked. My sister Barbara was new age all the way, wacky, wacky stuff, man. And I'm teaching up with Farouz. I'm, I'm teaching, he was out of town, and so I was teaching a service up there with the Farsi-speaking church, had an interpreter, and my sister wanted to come. No kidding, as I'm preaching, she's crying. And through the whole message, crocodile tears, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on. And so we, we go out to lunch after the service, and she says, Rob, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a total pessimist. I'm like, well, Barb, we got to talk about that. But man, she was so open to Jesus. And so she received Christ in my living room. That day we had a baptism. I got to baptize my sister. But it was in God's timing, in God's way. My brother Stu waited four years. My brother Gordon, 19 years, 19 years. My mother and my brother Rick, 23 years. My sister Barbara, 24 years. Waiting, praying, pleading. God moves in his timing, in his way. Two things we've seen. God's at work in the waiting, even if we can't see it. God reveals things in his timing, in his way. And the third lesson is God calls and establishes his people to positions of influence. So again, God is not passive, he is active. He is the one who gives the increase and he is the one who actually gives us any influence that we have. Look at verses 38 and 39, it says, then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. So Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this, in whom is the divine spirit. This is interesting. You know, Pharaoh's a pagan, multiple gods, and yet he's glorifying the God of Joseph, the true and living God. 
And what Pharaoh does is he gives Joseph great responsibility. In verse 40, he says, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And so he sets Joseph over the land of Egypt. You've got to understand, this is only a God-ordained moment. He takes literally off the signet ring off his own hand, and he puts it on Joseph. I don't know if anybody you know that. There are credit cards out there that have no limit. It's kind of like that, but even more. I mean, Joseph could command armies if he wanted. Total responsibility for the kingdom except for Pharaoh. Absolute wealth. He gives him a gold chain showing that he has this authority. He puts him in fine linen so everybody will notice. And by the way, suddenly he looks Egyptian. He goes from Hebrew slave to an Egyptian master over everyone except Pharaoh. And how quickly things can change when God is moving. And verse 45 tells us that Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name and he gave him a wife, Zephaniah Paneah, which means God speaks and lives. And also his wife was Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah. And so if you looked at Joseph, suddenly he is this new Egyptian ruler in the land of Egypt. Guys, he even got a company car. He got the second chariot of Egypt. And so wherever he drives, everybody notices him. God had moved. God had put him in this place. And in verse 46, it says, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, his king. He arrived at age 17. Now he's 30. He's still a young man. And the waiting on God and God's timing and God's way, now God gives him influence. It had turned, if you will, to blessing. Now God blessed Joseph and he gave him a wife and children. Now now if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, I want to just kind of put all the past behind me. I got this whole new start. Basically, I'm Egyptian, but he doesn't do that. And you see that with the names of his children. It says in verses 50 to 52, Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph from Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. She bore him. Joseph named the first one Masenah, for he said, God has made me forget all the trouble of all my father's household. And he named the second one Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Both of those are Hebrew names. Joseph had not forgotten his God. He had not forgotten his heritage. He knew who he was and what God was doing. But I want to tell you what the defining virtue of him was. Joseph knew that his God was a big God. Joseph knew that his God was the God over all gods. And I got to ask you this morning, is God big to you? Because to Joseph, he was huge. It reminds him of a story I just read this past week, Professor Robert Dick Wilson. He was one of the great professors at Princeton Theological Seminary. This is when Princeton actually believed in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. But one of his students had been invited to preach at what was known as Meller's Chapel, and it was 12 years after the student had left. And Dr. Wilson walked up to the student after he had preached And uh, he had actually sat down in in the front row, and this is what he said. He said, if you come back again, he says, I will not come back to hear you preach. I only come once. And then he said, I am glad that you're a big godder. 
He said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they're big godders or little godders, and then I know how their ministry will be. And, and, and of course, the student says, well, what's a big godder? He says, well, some men have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. They can't do any miracles. They can't, they don't, they can't care. He, I mean, God can't care for, for the inspiration and transmission of Scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of the people. Those are little godders. And then there are those that have a great God. He's the God that speaks and it happens. He's the God that moves and it becomes. He says, you are a big godder because you have a, a big God. And he said, and God is going to use you for his ministry. And isn't that the question for us this morning? How big is your God? Joseph had been waiting, but he knew. God never left him. He was always on the throne. His God was massive. How about you? And it ends in verse 57. It says, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the land. So God had gone before Joseph had elevated and established him as a second man in power of all of Egypt. And that's often how God works. One life can influence a huge number of people. Your life matters. God can and will use you if you submit to him makes me think of the name Edward Kimball. Do any of you guys know Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball was a simple Sunday school teacher. But he had a heart for his young men. They, they were young men. They were teenage men, starting to work, that kind of thing. And he made a decision before God that he would personally reach out to each one of them and pray for them every day. And then he would reach out to them and try to reach them for Christ. And there was one young man particularly that just seemed kind of hard-headed and distant from God. And so he went to where this young man worked, and it was a shoe store. That young man's name was D.L. Moody. And he went to a store, and he shared Christ with him in the back room, and D.L. Moody came to Christ that day. And D.L. Moody, after he received Christ, we all know the story, became a, an evangelist that God used mightily. But the story doesn't end there. Under Moody, another man's heart was touched for God, and his name was Wilbur Chapman. Chapman confirmed his faith with Moody, and Moody personally discipled him, and Wilbur Chapman became an evangelist as well. And as he was preaching, many were coming to Christ, and there was a professional ball player that went, went to a, an evangelism meeting, and his name was Billy Sunday. And Chapman took Billy Sunday under his wing and began to disciple him. Chapman... Uh, became a pastor at a church and Billy Sunday started preaching the gospel. Many came to Christ and under Billy Sunday's ministry, a man by the name of Mordecai Ham was touched with the Lord. And Billy Sunday ministered with Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham became an evangelist and he went to Charlottesville and there was a, a young lanky guy with sandy hair and and all his friends called him Billy Frank. We know him as Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, I'm never going to go listen to this guy. He's weird. But finally, some of his friends went, and he went. 
And the first time he heard him, his heart was stirred, but the second time he went, he received Jesus Christ. And in, in Billy Graham's ministry, it's estimated that he reached over 22 million people heard his preaching, more than any other evangelist that we know of. But guys, it started with one man, Edward Kimball. And my point is this, God often works for those who are open. And God will give you the increase and the influence if you're listening, but he does that work in the hard times, in the time of waiting. What are you waiting on? What is it right now that if you were to say, Lord, there's this thing in my life? For some of you, it's a job. It's a career. For some of you, it might be a relationship. You're waiting for a mate. For some of you, it might be health. Something going on that you need God's help. For some of you, it may be like me. It was my family. I, I'm still waiting. I have a sister, her name is Libby. She doesn't know Christ. It's been 28 years, I'm still praying, asking God. I have a son who's a prodigal. His name's David, you can pray for him. What is it? But don't think this time of waiting is wasted. God will use it in his timing and in his way. And he's moving even though you don't see it. And he will use you and give you influence at just the right moment. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts to you right now. And we see with Joseph that, Lord, you move mightily through this young man. Father, I pray for our church and I pray for everyone here. I know there are a number of different situations, Lord, where people are waiting on you. And there are some, Lord, that think that maybe you've forgotten, but Lord, you never forget. For those that are your children, Lord, you know everything we need. And I lift this up to you, Lord. You give the increase. You make things happen. But Lord, you call us to wait, to have faith. You change us. You mold us. You work on us. You work on our hearts, Lord. I pray you continue to do that work so that people are usable for your kingdom and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.